everyone, and welcome to the Thrilling Adventures of Superman, a podcast where Superman still stands for truth, justice, and the American way. This is episode 45, and my name, as always, is Michael Bradley. At least I hope that's always my name, because if not, that could prove rather awkward. Anyway, this time out, we're back to the spinner rack for a look at the Superman story from Action Comics number 24. And unless something happens to rearrange the schedule that I've got planned, I think this will be the last comic book we look at in this calendar year. Uh, But because of the way things fall, we'll have at least two in January and two in February. And there's lots of good stuff between then and now, so lots of stuff to look forward to. It's kind of rare on a show like this one where I'm looking at material originally produced 70 years ago to have any sort of contemporary news or information to share but in the last month or so some really interesting things have surfaced online first up and you may have heard this even if you only keep a passing eye on the comics news sites because they were all trumpeting it but the original 1938 check given to Jerry Siegel and Joe Shuster as payment for that very first Superman story has surfaced. While important might not be quite the right word to describe it, it certainly is a significant item, and to my mind, just a fascinating piece of comic book history. The check is dated March 1st, 1938, which, as I mentioned back during my spotlight on Jerry Siegel, is the date when Siegel and Schuster signed the contract with DC for Superman. Interestingly, the check is for $412, with the left-hand part of the check breaking down line items. There's $130 for Superman, and the rest for materials published in Detective Comics, New Adventure Comics, and More Fun Comics, as they were doing Dr. Occult, Radio Squad, Bart Regan, Slam Bradley, and Federal Men in those titles. Of note is that the Doctor Occult feature ended the same month Superman began. So, while this is the first payment that Siegel and Schuster received for Superman, it may well also be the last they received for Doctor Occult. And I also <laughs> and I also had to kind of roll my eyes when I saw the check because the last names of both Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster are misspelled on the check, which is just proof that people who really ought to know better have been misspelling their names since at least 1938. But anyway, the check is going up for auction soon, hopefully to be bought by a museum or some place that will be able to display it alongside other comics history memorabilia. If for some reason you missed the news item on all the various news sites, I will put a link to that in the show notes. Bigger news, though, or at least more exciting as far as I'm concerned, is that what seems to be artwork for a complete, unpublished Superman story from the mid-1940s has surfaced. And I'm kind of surprised that the item got such little play on the various news sites. Um, Assuming it's legit, it's a pretty big find. Comic art from this era is rare, and full stories extremely so, and full unpublished stories are almost unheard of. All 12 pages from the story are currently up for sale at Heritage Auctions, and according to them, the late Rich Morrissey said that in his opinion, the story was likely written by Jerry Siegel with art by the Schuster Studio. 
The story is called Supermite and involves Luthor shrinking Superman down and imprisoning him in a uh, within a bubble while he goes about his, you know, villainy. I posted a link to it on the Facebook page a couple weeks ago and you'll still find it there. Uh, it shouldn't be too far down the wall when you're hearing this. So be sure to check that out because it's pretty cool. Uh, also, while you're there, be sure to like the Facebook page so you can find out about this stuff before I get around to mentioning it on the show. Sawate. My name is Stella, and I am the host of Bad Girl to Oracle, the Barbara Gordon podcast. Bad Girl to Oracle is a podcast and site dedicated to Barbara Gordon, the first woman to hold the Bad Girl mantle for an extended period of time, roughly 1967 to 1985. The goal of BTO is to examine the character's history from her first appearance as Batgirl and continue on through her current tenure as Oracle. Each episode looks at vintage issues of Detective Comics and Batman and modern issues of Batgirl and Birds of Prey. I also keep track of news involving Batgirl and other members of the Bat family, and I examine Barbara Gordon's appearances in the media, such as TV, film, etc. I've been blessed to be able to interview writer Brian Q. Miller, and I hope to interview more creators and actors in the future. My goal, most importantly, is to make a fun, entertaining, and thoughtful show that people enjoy and from which they learn. Please visit us online at batgirltooracle.net and look for us on iTunes. Thank you. So, Action Comics number 24 was released March 21st, 1940. That puts it coming out just after the end of the radio storyline Charlie and I looked at last episode, and in the midst of daily and Sunday newspaper storylines we'll be looking at in upcoming episodes. It's got a cover date of May 1940, and a price of 10 cents. One minor note related to the design of covers. After the addition of the DC Bullet last issue, we've got another small tweak this time out as the price which to now has been a very condensed font within a parallelogram, gets replaced with a serif font within a circle. And I also note that the registered U.S. Patent Office line has dropped off as well for unknown reasons. Both are just small changes, but as a design major, I really like seeing how these covers and the the cover elements evolve and change uh, throughout the years. Speaking of art, though, this cover, which is by Joe Schuster and Paul Cassidy, shows Superman breaking through a wall, busting in to save a woman who is being menaced by some crook of some sort. An interesting thing about this cover is that Schuster originally drew it so that the guy was holding the girl at gunpoint, but Whitney Ellsworth had him change it due to the pressure that they were feeling from the parent and teacher groups concerning the violence in the comic stories. He asked for the change, reminding him and Siegel of the pressure they were under, saying that they at least needed to tone down the violence on the very visible covers to the books. Now, someone being held at gunpoint or a knife to someone's throat may seem tame, especially compared to comic covers of today, but I also note that the woman's eyes on the cover are closed, which, assuming it was like that on the original as well, probably made them even more nervous since it could have been construed that she was dead. But in any event, Schuster did change the cover, and instead we have the crook snatching the woman's necklace, with no 
weapons visible, aside from a uh, kind of ambiguous piece of machinery in the lower right. But still, it's a great cover, and like so many from this era, it has a really iconic feel. And also, like several recent covers, we're reminded once more that Action Comics is the world's largest selling comic magazine. Turning inside, our 13-page Superman story was written by Jerry Siegel, with art by Joe Schuster and Paul Cassidy, and edited by Whitney Ellsworth. It had no title originally, but in recent years has been called Carnahan's Air. Our splash panel shows Superman battling a trio of robots. They're every bit as goofy looking as the Ultra Humanites robots from Action Comics number 21. But like I said there, since Superman fighting a robot is almost always cool, they get a pass. Our intro text was used back in Superman number 4, but I'm going to read it again just because it's awesome. Leaping over skyscrapers, running faster than an express train, springing great distances and heights, lifting and smashing tremendous weights, possessing an impenetrable skin. These are the amazing attributes which Superman, savior of the helpless and oppressed, avails himself as he battles the forces of evil and injustice. Very cool. As our story opens, every paper in Metropolis runs an advertisement directed towards a certain hero. Superman, I urgently need your assistance. Address, Box Y84. Clark sees the ad and thinks that it would make a humdinger of a story. No, really. He actually says, humdinger. His boss tells him the ad was placed by a retired industrialist by the name of Rufus Carnahan and to go get the scoop. Shortly later, Clark arrives at the Carnahan mansion, but is rudely given the bum's rush by the butler, who says that reporters are not welcome. Resolving that Carnahan needs him, and that no one is going to stand in his way, Clark switches to Superman and heads back to the mansion. The butler again turns him away, but, as we know, Superman doesn't take no for an answer, and slaps the butler out of the way, charging his way into the house. The butler screams at Superman to get out, and all of the commotion raises Carnahan himself. The butler reminds the aged Carnahan that the doctor told him to stay in bed, but as Carnahan snaps back, Superman leaps up the stairs, grabs the man, and gingerly places him back into bed. While the butler puts in a call to the police, Superman introduces himself to Carnahan, who oddly doesn't seem to know who Superman is, despite having put ads in what the text said was every newspaper in Metropolis to get his attention. Anyway, Carnahan soon explains his plight. He says that during his life, he worked hard to build a prosperous business and amass a huge fortune. But now that he's old and dying, he's realized that he's not a success at all, but in fact a failure. It seems because of Carnahan's failure as a father, his son Peter has grown up to be a slouch and a bum who is up to his neck in gambling debts. I've heard of your great sense of humanity, Carnahan pleads. Assist me, I implore you. Straighten out my son's character so that he will be a man. I'll pay you any amount. And Superman replies, I give you my word, but I absolutely refuse to accept any compensation. Downstairs, Peter shows up and the butler tells him about Superman's intrusion, saying that he needs to go help his father. But the lazy bum that is Peter refuses, saying the butler should go as that's what he's paid for. But thankfully, the police show up to do the job for both of them and head upstairs as Peter cowers in the corner. The officers swiftly reach Carnahan's room, 
but Superman leaps out the window with a few mocking words towards the police. As Superman leaves, Carnahan thinks to himself that speaking with Superman has renewed his hope and that Superman might be able to succeed where he failed. Back downstairs, Peter receives a phone call. After pleading with the caller not to do it, he says he'll be right over. Superman follows Peter as he goes to the Purple Ore, one of the most notorious roadhouses in town. Inside, a man named Jake Brent demands Peter pay the $10,000 debt that he owes. Superman listens in as Peter cowers, whining about how he doesn't have the money, and then leaps off, pondering how he'll take on the task that Carnahan has presented him. Arriving later back at the Deadly Planet, Clark is shocked when his boss tells him to forget about the assignment because news just came in that Carnahan has died. As Clark is writing up the obituary, he notices a provision in Carnahan's will that, should Peter get mixed up with a gambling scandal, he'll receive nothing from his father's estate. Later, Clark returns to the Carnahan home to get a quote from from the uh, distraught Peter for the story about his father's death. As they're speaking, Brent barges in and tosses Clark out. Once outside, Clark slips behind a tree and uses his x-ray vision to keep watch of the goings-on inside the house. And I love the narration Siegel uses here about Superman's x-ray vision. It says, His eyes glow weirdly as he makes use of the x-ray ability. The side of the mansion seems to melt away, revealing the tense scene within. And I just love that. It's a very vivid depiction of his x-ray vision. Maybe not from a physical standpoint, but from Superman's point of view. And in the art, we get a panel of this ray just blasting across the yard and hitting the side of the building. Now, obviously he's not shooting lasers out of his eyes at this point, but they're still learning and figuring out how to represent Superman's more unique powers. I mean, (laughs) throwing a car is easy, but X-ray vision? Come on. (laughs) Who's done that in comics before? So, inside the house, Brent threatens Peter again, demanding that he be paid the money he owes, or he'll tip off the executors of the will. As Clark is spying, he's caught by the butler. But before the butler can do anything, both men hear a gunshot from within the home. Rushing inside, they find Brent dead on the floor, while back outside, Peter speeds away in a car. Knowing he'll never catch up to Peter in a car, Clark swiftly changes to Superman and gives chase. Inside the car, Peter speeds farther and farther along, agonizing over how not only is he a liar and a gambler, but now a murderer as well. Thinking he has no other option, Peter decides to end it all and directs his car off a nearby cliff. But, at the last second, Superman leaps forward and grabs the car's bumper, saving it from the fatal plunge. Hoisting the car overhead, Superman uses his free hand to crush the car's tire before setting it down again on the road. Peter begs for Superman not to hurt him, which Superman finds odd given that minutes before the guy was ready to kill himself. Grabbing Peter, Superman heads back to town to turn him in for Brent's murder. Peter claims innocence, and Superman firmly tells him he'll have a chance to prove it, and assuring him, you have my solemn promise, that if you are truly innocent, you won't pay a murderer's penalty. Just awesome stuff. So Peter turns himself in, and as he waits in jail, he gets a visit from Clark Kent. Peter explains that while he did point the gun at Brent, he was only bluffing. He wasn't actually going to shoot, but the gun accidentally fired. And what happens next is a bit unusual. 
at least in Golden Age Superman comics to this point, as we get more than a page detailing Peter's trial before a crowded courtroom. The district attorney makes his opening statement. It's true that the victim was not an asset to society, but the fact remains that the accused shot him down in cold blood, and we must see to it that he pays the supreme penalty. The DA then puts both the butler and Clark Kent on the stand, who placed Peter both at the scene and fleeing from it after the Brent was found dead. Peter, in a move that perhaps rails against all wise judgment, then takes the stand himself, and the DA hammers him with a line of questions, exposing his gambling debt, the provision in the will, Brent's threat to blackmail him, and finally the $64 question, isn't it a fact that you deliberately shot down Jake Brent to shut his mouth? Peter says that's not true, however, it's clearly too late, and days later, as the trial comes to a close, Peter is found guilty of first-degree murder. Clark tries to appeal to the governor, saying he's got a hunch that Peter is innocent, but is turned away when the governor says he can't issue a pardon without proof. Clark resigns to the fact that Peter will die in the electric chair, then, thinking to himself, but not if Superman has anything to say about it. Later that evening, Superman arrives at the Carnahan estate, and after forcing his way inside the house, begins his own investigation. Using his array of vision powers to survey the room, well, actually it only mentions his microscopic vision, but I like to think he's using his x-ray vision as well. And now that I think about it, I'm not completely sure they've ever mentioned microscopic vision before. Um, telescopic and x-ray for sure, but I don't know about microscopic. I'd have to check on that. In any event, using his vision powers, Superman spots a bullet embedded in the floor. From the angle of the shot, he thinks it's possible Peter's shot missed, and that an unknown person, i.e. the real killer, fired the fatal shot from the window. He then calls the Daily Planet, using his Clark Kent voice, I'm sure, and speaks with the guy that runs the morgue, and learns that Benny Farrell, a rival gambler, was one of Brent's fiercest, gam- fiercest enemies. Excuse me. We soon find Superman landing on the roof of Farrell's casino, and using his super hearing to listen to the goings-on inside. As it happens, just at that moment, Farrell is conveniently inside, boasting with two of his flunkies about how he got away with murder. Having heard all he needs to hear, Superman rips a hole in the roof and charges after Farrell. Farrell tries shooting at Superman, but the bullets merely bounce off the Man of Steel's chest, one even ricocheting back and hitting Farrell in the wrist. With only ten minutes to go before Peter's execution, Superman then grabs Farrell and speeds off. Back at the jail, Peter is being led to the execution chamber. His claims of innocence and pleas for mercy fall on deaf ears as he's strapped into the chair and the executioner's hand reaches for the switch. Meanwhile, Superman races back to the city's power plant. He breaks in and tears off an ambiguous piece from the generator, which cuts off power to the jail, mere seconds before the death switch is thrown. With Peter's execution temporarily stalled, Superman hightails it to the governor's home, where Farrell makes a full confession. Hearing it and not at all questioning Superman's dubious methods, the governor then calls the jail and immediately grants Peter a full pardon. Several days later, Peter speaks with a lawyer who informs him that while the will's clause still holds and Peter doesn't get any inheritance, they can take his advice as to how the money should be spent. Peter explains that while he was in prison, he had time to think things over, 
and there's only one thing he wants to see done with the money. And soon, the Rufus Carnahan Home for Youth opens its doors. Months later, we meet up again with Peter as Clark congratulates him on the successes the home has accomplished. And Peter replies, I'm trying hard to atone for the mess I've made of my life. I only regret that I couldn't have made my father proud of me while he lived. Aww. I really enjoyed this story quite a bit. It was really a bit of a different story, a bit of a different story setup than we've seen in the past. The closest we've seen are the comeback of Larry Trent from the newspaper dailies with maybe a little bit of Kid Town from uh, Action Comics number 15 mixed in. You know, this is Superman just helping people. And it's different here because this is the era of Superman as champion of the oppressed. But in this story, there's really no one being oppressed. Rufus Carnahan, he appeals to Superman because his son's a screw-up, and Superman sets out to help him. Ultimately, he doesn't really do anything to actively set him on the right path. I mean, yeah, he clears him of the murder charge, sure, but it was just coincidental that that is what shocked his system. I think I would have liked to have seen Superman digging in and actually trying to help this kid, like he did with Larry Trent. So, in that, I think I like the Larry Trent story, or really even the Kid Town story, a little more. But, had Siegel used this idea for the newspapers, where he had more space, I like to think Siegel would have explained that a li- or explored that a little more. As Superman comic stories go to this point, this one's pretty packed full, so... It might have just been a space issue. And I really liked the trial scene, too. I mean, man, I really loved that. I loved that Siegel actually took the time to show us the trial and to show us how the DA railroaded this guy, even if, once again, he could have spent more time on it if he had more space. That type of sequence is fairly unique in the, in the type of stories we've covered to this point. There is some time wonkiness in the story, After Carnahan dies, Clark goes back to the planet and immediately has a copy of the will. And as well, the time between Peter's trial and his execution seems to only be a few days. And you would think, in a case of this type, there would be an appeal of some sort in there from Peter himself. And I'm not really sure why Superman waited so long before doing his own investigation. I can no-prize it and say that he has faith in the system and was letting the law run its course. I really like a Superman that has faith in the idea that good will win in the end and that the system, while maybe not perfect in all forms, won't send an innocent man to death. But, on the other hand, I know that's not a Superman trope until much later. And given the amount of corruption and... The, the amount of corrupt officials he's taken on in the the last almost two years, you know. Plus, if if he really thought Peter was innocent, why not start earlier? But these things were just typical of how stories were written at the time, and they really didn't hamper my enjoyment of it. So, I really can't knock it too much. Plus, I've learned from watching Law and Order that almost any crime can be solved in sixty minutes or less, including commercial breaks. So. I did find it interesting, uh, the scene where the bullet bounces off Superman and hits Farrell, or excuse me, Farrell in the wrist. It's never referenced again, past that one panel, 
but I thought it was interesting because we haven't actually seen a scene like that before. And I can't help but wonder if maybe this was Siegel's attempt to pacify those who were complaining about the violence in comics. You know, he could still have the criminals getting their quote-unquote just desserts, so to speak, without having it actually be Superman's fault. I don't know. We'll just have to kind of keep an eye on that and see as we go forward. The art here is pretty solid. There's a couple panels that could have used a bit more detail, but I really like it. It's closer to Schuster's older style than the last issue, but accepting that really above par compared to the average of what we've seen in the three print medias uh, recently. Schuster and Cassidy, I think, are really gelling together at this point. Both on the cover and inside, we get shades of the larger, more stylized shield that we've seen in the newspapers. It's not quite what we've seen there, but it's definitely a step in that direction. Really, the biggest issue with the art here, and your mileage may vary on how big of an issue it is, but it's that the coloring isn't real consistent. On the cover, Superman's shield is completely yellow with a red S, and his belt is red with a yellow buckle. Inside, Superman's chest shield is colored completely red in many panels, with a couple panels at the end being red with a yellow S, which is exactly the opposite of what we've seen until now. The S on his cape is pretty much always colored yellow when it's there, so there's just lots of inconsistencies throughout, but we're going to see more of that as we keep going, and like I said, whether or not that's a problem at all is really one of those things that's that's debatable, I think. Unfortunately, there's only been two reprints for this story, which is really too bad because it's it's a great story, I think. But if you want to read it, you can check out Superman, the Action Comics Archives, Volume 2, or Superman Chronicles, Volume 3. You are cordially invited to attend a podcast that observes the unfolding events of history. Come with me and observe the birth and growth of a legend. From the pages of a ten-cent pulp comic book to the newspapers, radio program adventures, theatrical films, and more. Witness the dawn of the superhero. Golden Age Superman. Available on iTunes and at goldenagesuperman.libsyn.com. Every legend has a beginning. Other features in this issue include Pet Morgan, the Black Pirate, the Three Aces, Tex Thompson, Clip Carson, and as always, Zaytara, the Master Magician. We've also got the full-page Big Six ad that we've seen a few times before, as well as a half-page ad for Superman number four. It shows a cartoonish-looking guy saying, Hey, fellers! Better hurry, there's still maybe a few left on the newsstands. And he's holding a 
giant reproduction of the cover. It's just funny stuff. I, I want to say this looks like Sheldon Moldoff art, but I'm just not completely sure. Below that, there's another half-page ad advertising that Superman is on the radio. Sponsored by the makers of H.O. Oats over the following stations. And then it lists 12 stations with a note to watch your local newspaper for additional stations. What's interesting is this ad lists nine of the stations as airing the show on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, with the other three airing it on Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday. And this is, and I should probably bring this up on one of the episodes where Charlie and I are actually talking about the radio show, but this is one of the things that has made pinning down exact logs for the radio show so maddening over the years, because not all the stations that aired the episodes did so on the same days. And stations that picked up the show later would frequently start from the beginning rather than jumping in midstream, so that puts them even farther behind. But still, the air dates I'm using on this show, I'm as certain as I can be that they're really as close to accurate as they're ever going to be. They've been compiled by people much more versed in old-time radio than I am, so I really trust their research. In any event, this is an ad that we're going to see quite a few more times as we progress, and that list of stations is just going to keep growing and growing. We've also got the second Action Comics Monthly Book Review, looking at Life on the Mississippi by Mark Twain, which details Twain's days as a steamboat pilot on the Mississippi River. And last but not least, we have our ninth Superman of America page. The special message from Superman is a cornucopia of topics. He starts out by talking about how memberships for the club are still flooding in and that they, they're all very happy about that. And then he goes on to talk about the contest and says that finally the winners will be announced next month. And they really are because I looked ahead. So when we talk about Action Comics number 25, we will finally get the big reveal of the winners to a contest that ended more than 70 years ago. <laughs> he then talks about the radio program, encouraging kids to write their local radio stations and tell them that they want to hear the program, and the message wraps up with a reminder of the club's motto of strength, courage, and justice. It's a great motto for Americans, for America is one of the few nations of the world in which those three attributes still operate as one all-engulfing design for national living except for the non-white people who, in 1940, were still considered second-class citizens. But they don't mention that. Yes, members, the old United States of America is a grand country, and we should all be mighty proud of being citizens. Let's resolve to keep our country the way it is, with strength, courage, and justice. And on that note, it occurs to me that to this point, I don't think we've seen any non-white characters in a Superman story. Well, from the comics or newspapers, anyway. We had Sita in the radio arc we talked about last episode, and I guess some of the other characters could have been non-white. It's just difficult to tell on the radio. Although, <laughs> maybe a lack of minority characters is for the best at this point, given how Gargantua T. Potts is depicted in the Tex Thompson strip. Anyway, the page also has Superman's secret message, which can be decoded using code MARS, number three on your Superman of America club decoder. 
and the message is, Let strength, courage, and justice be not only a motto, but a true way of living for all of us in these glorious United States. Other books out in March 1940, as I mentioned the last time we had a uh, comic book episode, beginning this month, all DC titles begin supporting the DC Bullet on the cover. The All-American titles don't, but they will pick it up starting next month, I think. But as for the actual books themselves, the biggest book of the month, without a doubt, was Detective Comics number 38, featuring the first appearance of Robin, the Boy Wonder. Wherever Batman goes, he is always there, and all their evil foes are very much aware that though he's just a boy, no grown-up can compare with Robin, the wonderful Boy Wonder. If Batman's in a fix and it looks like it's the end He really doesn't worry, he knows he can depend On that fearless teenage hero who is his closest friend Robin, the wonderful boy wonder He fights for... Robin is, of course, Dick Grayson, the youngest member of the family of acrobats known as the Flying Graysons. After Dick's parents are killed, the Batman takes Dick under his wing and the two join forces to fight crime as the dynamic duo. And if you want to hear more about that particular story and the sensational character find of 1940, be sure to check out episode 13 of Legends of the Batman, where Michael Kaiser and I talked all about it and had a really great discussion, I think. This issue of Detective Comics also sees Dennis Neville take over as artist on Slam Bradley, which Jerry Siegel is still writing. And it features the debut of Red Logan, a strip by Ken Ernst as well. We also had Adventure Comics number 49, which had a generic uh, stock action cover, despite the book having two popular features with The Hour Man and The Sandman. Flash Comics number 5 from All-American had the first and only cover featuring King Standish. And the last book from the company was All-American Comics number 14, with a very colorful Hop Harrigan cover. Outside of DC, Marvel had three books, including Marvel Mystery Comics number 7. On the cover of that, we see the Human Torch battling scuba divers underwater. No idea how that works. Comic book science, maybe? Yeah. This month also saw the debut of Master Comics from Fawcett, featuring the lead character of Masterman. Masterman is another character that was sued out of existence by a lawsuit from DC, even though the character is really less similar to Superman than Fox's Wonder Man, which DC had previously sued over. Masterman has Superman's basic power set at this time, uh, speed, strength, and endurance. But instead of being an alien, he obtains his abilities by taking a drug called Vitacap. So really, he's as much Superman as he is Our Man in that regard. Though, unlike Our Man, I don't think he had to keep taking the drug. I think it was just once and he had the powers for good. But thanks to their success with Wonder Man, they sued Fawcett over Master Man. Or at least they threatened to. Now that I say that, I'm not actually completely positive that they actually filed a suit. But still, Master Man was pulled after just six issues. And no doubt their success with killing Master Man spurred on their suit against Captain Marvel, uh, given that they both came from Fawcett. Despite the fact that Masterman only saw publication in six issues, 
Master Comics would continue until 1953, eventually becoming home to, ironically enough, Captain Marvel Jr. stories. Fawcett went on to recycle the name of Master Man for a one-off villain in a Kid Eternity story from the late 1940s, and Marvel Comics also has a trio of Nazi-themed characters that have used the name as well and have appeared uh, throughout the years. But also of note, as far as what else was happening in the world, while it's not comic books per se, on March 2nd, 1940, cartoon character Elmer Fudd made his first appearance in the Mary Melody short Elmer's Candid Camera. The short also has an early version of Bugs Bunny before he was called Bugs Bunny. And his voice in that is different as well, though I think Mel Blanc still did the voice in that short. In 2000, DC published a four-issue miniseries by Mark Evanier and Joe Staten called Superman and Bugs Bunny. The basic idea of this series is that due to shenanigans from Mr. Mixius Pitalik and the Dodo Bird, the world of the DC Comics heroes and the world of the Looney Tunes characters merge, and eventually the characters themselves start merging or swapping places. You know, we have Batman and Daffy Duck, uh, they merge, and Daffy becomes the Duck Knight. And maybe funniest of all, and why I'm bringing this up, is that Superman and Elmer Fudd merge. Elmer Fudd gains the costume and abilities of Superman, complete with a spit curl on the front of his bald head, while the real Superman is overwhelmed with a desire to hunt rabbits. And there's even a great scene where Evanier has a little fun with Elmer's uh, speech impediment and the numerous characters in Superman's life whose initials are LL. It's just one of those bizarre series that I don't know that we'll ever really see again, at least, you know, with the state of the comics industry now. It's really fun, though, and enjoyable, but I mean, it's <laughs> it's the DC Universe and Looney Tunes. Both are great, and I love both, but they're two worlds that are just completely different and really have very little business being together because they're great for different reasons, you know? But the series just turned out to be really fun, especially if you take it for what it is. It would be great to see it as an animated direct-to-video release, but I really don't see that happening. And I don't think it's even been collected as a, in a trade, which is kind of surprising because back issues, uh, from what I've seen, are usually fairly pricey. But if you have kids, or if you just like you know fun comics that don't take themselves too seriously... I recommend trying to track it down. Take the mightiest superheroes on Earth. Each an invincible champion of justice. Band them together in a common cause against crime and evil. And you have... The Justice League of America. And now their adventures are being chronicled on the Podcast of Justice, a bi-weekly podcast covering every issue of the Justice League from the Silver Age to today. Join hosts Charlie Niemeyer and Isaac Frisbee.
at podcastofjustice.blogspot.com. Okay, let's get this show on the road, gang. Mondays. Available the third Monday of every month at twotruefreaks.libson.com. Next episode, I'll be rejoined by Charlie Niemeyer for a look at the fourth storyline from the radio serial. And in fact, I think if everything goes to plan, Charlie will be here for the next two episodes, so we can all look forward to that. Until then, though, show notes and back episodes can be found at the website at greatcrypton.com. I'm really trying to get to posting more stuff there, but it's just not happening. Um, I do have a monthly feature called The Stack, where I talk about the comics I read in the previous month, and I've actually been expanding on that a bit in the last few entries, so I invite you to check that out. And you can also find uh, posts there for my other podcast, Green Lantern's Light, and any other you know guest appearances I might make on other shows. At the site, you'll also find links to the RSS feed as well as iTunes if you want to subscribe to the show directly. If you have any comments or feedback, just send me an email to thrillingadventures at greatcrypton.com. I do love hearing from listeners, so drop me a line and let me know your thoughts. You can also get in touch with me via the various social networks. Uh, the show is on both Facebook and Twitter, and direct links to both of those can be found at the site as well. Also remember to stop by the Superman homepage. Steve Eunice posts updates whenever I have new episodes, and he has all sorts of other news and reviews in between. The show is also proud to be a member of the Superman Podcast Network at supermanpodcastnetwork.com, which is home to many excellent Superman-related podcasts. And last but not least, I invite you to check out my other show, Green Lantern's Light, which I co-host with J. David Weeder and Jeffrey Taylor. So head on over to GreenLanternsLight.com and check out our first episode. The second one should be out um, in about a week, week and a half from when you're hearing this. So be sure to listen to that one too when it comes. As always, Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster and is copyright DC Comics. So thanks again for listening to The Thrilling Adventures of Superman, and I will talk to you later. Goodbye.
quiet. I'm hunting rabbits. Wabbit wikes. Kill the wabbit, kill the wabbit, kill the wabbit. Kill the wabbit? Yo-ho-ho, 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 yo-ho. Almighty warrior of great fighting stock, might I inquire to ask him, what's up, Doc? I'm going to kill the wabbit. Almighty hunter, twill be quite a task. How will you do it? Might I inquire to ask? I will do it with my spear and magic helmet. Your spear and magic helmet? Spear and magic helmet. Magic helmet. Magic helmet. Magic helmet. Yes, magic helmet. And I'll give you a sample. 